This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back. Welcome to the Shower of the Program. Well, Threads has now officially been released into the wild, and so far it, it looks as though it's uh, gaining some traction. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, boasting this morning that uh, just in the first uh, 24 hours, about 30 million people had signed up for this. And that uh, clearly includes a lot of Canadians, which is interesting because, you know, yesterday we had prominent political figures, including the prime minister himself, denouncing Meta, the parent company that owns Facebook, Instagram, and now Threads. Remains to be seen, I guess, what it's going to mean for the availability of Canadian news on this platform, given that Meta has already said they're going to stop linking to Canadian news on their other two platforms. So there's that whole whole dimension that's going to get tied up in this. Uh, Threads is meant to be uh, a direct competitor to Twitter. That if you like Twitter, if you use Twitter, uh, there is much to like in Threads. So this is going to be interesting. Uh, we, we haven't really seen this kind of direct head-to-head competition between big social media companies in some time. You know, we've seen upstarts. I mean, Instagram came along to challenge Facebook, and, I mean, Facebook just bought it. Uh, TikTok has emerged as a pretty uh, important and substantial social media platform. And, you know, we've seen ways in which Facebook or Instagram have tried to, to emulate or, or compete with TikTok. Uh, But here we now have a new product that's being rolled out to directly take on a social media competitor. And it's interesting to think about, well, why? Uh, You know, Facebook and Instagram have done well. Meta's a pretty successful company. Uh, Twitter, I mean, mind you, I mean, it sold for $44 billion, but uh, I don't think it's worth that much right now. Elon Musk uh, has, has had some challenges in figuring out what he wants Twitter to be, how to grow Twitter, how to monetize Twitter. And then uh, even if you do manage to grow it, there's the technological challenges that come with that. And it seems like Twitter's having some difficulty these days just managing what it has. So it remains to be seen who might prevail in this battle. And I suppose, you know, it might be just kind of a war of attrition in which they both take a hit. Are Twitter users prepared to try something new? I guess that's the big question. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about the launch of Threads, what it means for Meta, what it means for Twitter, what it means for us, and uh, the future of social media. Very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon, uh, Daniel Sai, uh, technology law professor at the University of Toronto. He's a lawyer, columnist, a consultant, also the author of two books, Law, Technology, and Culture, and the Business of Social Media and Entertainment. Professor Sai, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I do wonder about why now and, and why this, uh, you know, given some of the issues that, that Meta has had in, in its path forward and, uh, you know, the, the pitfalls maybe of, of this kind of a nap. What's your sense of why now, first of all, why threats? Well, you made a good point there. Why now? It's, uh, they're late to the game. Uh, consider the fact that Facebook Meta has tried to copy TikTok with Reels, and that has not taken off. And they have also uh, are trying to compete with Twitter. And uh, they're late to the game in terms of trying to copy basically the same concept as Twitter, 
uh, although a bit more integrated with their Instagram app, Mm -hmm. it uh, doesn't uh, look uh, promising for them because, uh, you know, they have uh, first mover advantage, their competitors. So I think it's a, a big problem for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, given the the issues that Twitter has had, certainly when it comes to profitability and, you know, maybe Twitter's made some some ill-advised decisions, but I think it speaks to the challenge maybe of, uh, you know, scaling up that kind of an app. So when you look at the financial problems that Twitter has had, what what would motivate Meta to say, well, let's let's try to be that or let's try to to copy that? Well, they think they have uh, Facebook Meta, I think they have an advantage because they have a built-in user base with their Insta crowd, and uh, their Insta users are, tend to be a bit younger. It's uh, that app itself is more uh, picture based, but uh, the big issue there is they think they can encroach and take uh, some of the users from Twitter because Twitter has been struggling mightily in terms of uh, its relationship with advertisers, uh, Proliferate, uh, you know, free speech issues on that site. Uh, you know, it's been accused of fostering hate speech and uh, disinformation and misinformation. So I think uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook Meta see an opportunity to try to uh, get some of the, uh, the gloss or the popularity of Twitter uh, while Twitter is down and out. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this goes because, you know, so far, and I saw this morning Mark Zuckerberg uh, boasting that uh, they've had 30 million uh, people sign up for threads already. And that, that seems like an impressive number. But, I mean, how, how do we judge the success of this? Well, let's put it in perspective. Facebook itself has over a billion members, uh, which is astonishing. But it's also extremely strug- – it's starting to really struggle. Uh, they've had a 24% drop in revenue in Q1 of this year. They laid off 1,500 people in that quarter, and as well as uh, uh, significant layoffs and drops in revenue over the previous quarters. So they are a struggling company. Uh, they uh, are also trying to monetize as best they can their, their app. And you can see this in the, in the battle being fought out right here in Canada. Yep. When it comes to linking to Canadian news, they don't want to pay, and they're going to block Canadian news content. So this is a company that's focused on money. This is a company that's struggling, and this is a company that is basically throwing some Hail Marys out there and trying to innovate. But uh, as I mentioned before, they're late to the game. That's going to be an interesting dynamic because, you know, Bill C-18 and the Online News Act, it doesn't seem like the government's had much interest in, in Twitter, uh, or at least enforcing Twitter to to pay for links or strike deals with news organizations. So now that Meta's got its own version of Twitter, I mean, how's, how's this going to work? Uh, the Heritage Minister was asked yesterday about, you know, how all of this is going to apply with, with threads or if Canadian news is going to be blocked on threads. He didn't seem to know. What's your sense of what's, what's going to happen in Canada with threads? I, I think uh, that's, a, that's an accurate observation. I don't think the minister knows. Uh, in fact, he has said we're going to leave this up to uh, the CRTC and we're going to try to get this regulated. And, uh, you know, we'll, we've passed the law, but uh, wait and see with what happens with our regulations. So that is problematic. That means they've uh, attempted to come up with a solution without actually knowing what the solution is. And that's why you see a game of brinksmanship in terms of the posturing on Google Meta saying they are going to block Canadian news and the Canadian government saying, well, we're going to block you in terms of we're not going to advertise with you because we thought you would be 
uh, playing ball and, and participating in, in a revenue sharing uh, scheme with us. So I think uh, that's that's a big issue here is uh, the minister went ahead uh, haphazardly. And I think uh, whether or not they have a, a coherent plan in play, it really does remain to be seen. But I think that's a good observation that I don't think he even knows yeah. uh, what, he, what they're going to do. You know, it's interesting. I mean, let, let's say for the sake of argument that, that Threads is a huge success and, and it's, you know, it, it puts Twitter out of business. I mean, the idea that, you know, Facebook would have or Meta would have Facebook, they'd have Instagram, they now have Threads, they've eliminated a lot of competition. I mean, there's still uh, TikTok out there, I guess. But I mean, are we in, in, in the realm where we're talking about kind of a, a monopoly situation potentially? Well, in fact, it is. Uh, in Canada, there's a study uh, that came out and said that between Google and Facebook Meta, they have 80% market share of all online advertising. It's the reason why in the last 15 years, you've had almost 500 Canadian news organizations go out of business. And that's local community newspapers and, and the like. Uh, so, you, you, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a big issue here, is, uh, and you hit it on the nail which is the fact that uh, this is an oligopoly. Big tech has this dominant economic position. They control what we see. And, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about good corporate citizenship, but are we actually seeing that from Facebook meta? And I think a lot of people would argue that we're not. Back to, to Meta for a second, and you alluded to this already. I mean, their, their own evolving strategy here, and I saw their, their stock price got a bit of a bump thanks to threads this week. But if you take a step back and look big picture, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg was announcing the metaverse and their big vision for what the company was going to be, that wasn't that long ago, and it didn't involve let's copy Twitter. I mean, does this represent a, a big pivot on their part, or, or how do we make sense of their, their business strategy here? Uh, it's haphazard. You, you can tell that uh, they're just trying to throw anything that sticks. The metaverse was a big bet. They, they spent over $2 billion on R&D on it, uh, and they shelved it. And the thing is, they just misjudged the public uh, will. They thought uh, with COVID-19, people would be at home uh, for in perpetuity, and they would be uh, you know, flocking to the metaverse. And it turned out to be a bad bet because people still want human interaction. And this goes back to them trying Reels, which have failed. The copy TikTok, that, that project didn't uh, fly. Uh, the Metaverse, it was a big bust. And uh, you, I can see, uh, you know, their attempt to copy Twitter. It's a, a good PR move, you know, call it a, a Twitter killer. But the fact of the matter is Twitter was there first. And people are very hesitant to change their behaviors based on an app that basically does the same things that they're already on. Uh, if you look at the Threads app, it really isn't that much different uh, than what they already have with Insta. It has a few additional features with the texting uh, aspect of it. and uh, But the reality is it's not going to be something that's a game changer and, and supplant Twitter. Uh, uh, and... It's not even monetizable. He's offering, uh, you know, Zuckerberg, uh, Facebook Meta is offering it for free. I wonder how much of a wake-up call this is at Twitter uh, to try to get their act together. Maybe Elon Musk sort of bet on just the assumption that, you know, Twitter users are devoted Twitter users and they'll stick with the company or they'll cough up $8 a month for all of these features. I, I think they've struggled to to really get their footing. Does, does this maybe push them to, to straighten things out and figure out what they are and what they need to be? 
Yeah, they are working hard on the video aspect. Uh, this is this is, I mean, the the clear cut thing when it comes to social media. Videos uh, always do better than text, and uh, you see this with uh, Tucker Carlson announcing that he wants to be on Twitter and provide uh, video programming on it. Uh, they tried to launch Ron DeSantis and his presidential campaign on Twitter. So video is where it's at. Uh, the ability to turn that platform into a broadcasting platform that people are willing to pay a subscription is where Musk is going. And keep in mind, he's also the, uh, one of the founders of PayPal. He sees the potential in terms of banking and doing uh, e-transactions through Twitter, given the large uh, user base it has. So there's a, a number of things he can do to try to monetize it. Uh, his biggest issue has been the tech uh, glitches that have happened uh, yeah. in terms of the video programming and so forth. We'll see how it all shakes out in the weeks and months ahead. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Sai, thanks for your insight and all of this. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you. All right, there you go. That's Daniel Sai, a technology law professor at the University of Toronto. Some thoughts from him on the launch of Threads, what Meta's trying to do here, what it means for them, uh, what it means for Twitter. By the way, Twitter is threatening to sue Meta. Uh, a lawyer uh, letter emerged today uh, sent to Meta and a threat of a lawsuit here. Uh, accusing Meta of hiring ex-Twitter employees. Well, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, and suggested they're building a copycat app. Right, so look, there, there may be trade secrets that come into play or intellectual property, but I don't know if there's uh, enough basis to just say that site is similar to ours. You know, they're existing platforms. I mean, you know, Blue Sky and Mastodon are meant to be Twitter uh, competitors. Even uh, Donald Trump's uh, Truth Social is basically uh, a Twitter copycat, too. So yeah, I don't know how much uh, of a leg uh, Twitter or Elon Musk have to, uh, have to stand on here, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, I mean, Meta's made this a big priority, and they're pushing this hard, and so we'll, we'll see how that all shakes out. Canada, of course, is not a landlocked country. We have a vast coastline, but we also have a, a very long border with the United States, a land border. Numerous border crossings and much commercial traffic uh, goes in both directions across those border crossings every single day. But Canada also has ports, and they are commercially very significant. There is much that comes and goes through Canada's ports. And so having uh, one side of the country uh, kind of out of commission is a big problem. So you got 7,400 workers, uh, the port of Vancouver, uh, that are on strike. So this BC port workers strike. Uh, now dragging on to almost a week here and no end in sight. Uh, tomorrow, the prime minister is going to be meeting with Alberta's premier. Uh, Danielle Smith has in indicated that this is uh, one of the issues she intends to bring up with the prime minister and hoping that his government is prepared to step in and bring an end to this, that it's crucial we get those ports open. Energy exports, agricultural exports, manufacturing exports, but it's not just the stuff going out. It's what's coming in. Uh, you know, inputs uh, for manufacturers, uh, but also a lot of products coming in. So the grocery sector, the retail sector, really hit by this. So, yeah, there's a cost to the economy and potentially a cost to Canadians. Just as we're getting inflation under control, this is something that could have upward pressure on prices. Uh, so, yes, it all matters. And I guess the port workers would say, well, yes, it does. We matter. 
they hope that this provides some leverage to, to getting them a, a better or a fairer contract as they see it. But I don't know if Canadians have a vested interest in the specifics of that labor dispute, that we've definitely got a vested interest in the fallout from all of this. So joining us to talk about uh, the consequences of this kind of a strike, uh, how, how serious this might all prove to be. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Trevor Heaver, Professor Emeritus at the University of British Columbia, where he also served as past director of the Center for Transportation Studies. He's a founding member and past president of the International Association of Maritime Economists and past chair of the World Conference on Transport Research. Professor Heaver, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob, and you've been doing your homework. We try. We might appreciate that. Uh, how does this compare to other strikes or labor disputes that we've seen affecting Canadian ports in the past? Well, I would like to make the comparison with something that occurred roughly 18 months ago, which was the big flood and the closure of all of our links from <coughs> Vancouver into the rest of Canada. Right. So if you were to ask me what's the, excuse me, <clears throat> what's the immediate effect of um, the, the strike, I will simply ask you to think back 18 months. Um, so obviously there are, there are short-term consequences in consumers mm-hmm. not having availability of goods, and by weight, about um, 30% of the containerized cargo coming into Vancouver is is consumer goods. Right. Uh, it's much more than that of the total flow of goods uh, by by value. Um, so short run, it goes on a day or so, strike goes on a day or so, one can manage as it goes on, the inventories get depleted, the backup in the system grows, so the costs grow. But I also like to think about the longer term, uh, given, you know, 18 months ago you had the, the big flood, and I guess increasingly we are asking ourselves how to protect ourselves against. And, you know, with the time of climate change and fires are always on the news, right. we really are thinking much, much more often now than we probably have done for decades about how to protect ourselves against. So there's, there's long-run consequences. So how, how do importers protect themselves against the low reliability of uh, our corridor from the Port of Vancouver and Prince Rupert, but particularly Port of Vancouver into the rest of Canada? Mm-hmm. And one way of doing it is not to rely on that route. So if I'm currently getting something from China, well, there are various reasons why I'm already thinking about going to Southeast Asia or South Asia. And if I get a good supplier there, it is actually more interesting to import into Canada through our East Coast than through Vancouver. So you you put all those things together and you're giving yourself choice. If I'm thinking of exporting Canadian um, bulk products, and the example that we all use, I think, or that many of us use, is potash, um, because the Canpotex, which is the the main exporter through the west coast of, uh, of potash, um, already has established 
the facility in Portland, they did that some time ago, which unfortunately, right at the moment, is out of action because of the technology problems on the, on the terminal. But as they think about expanding, um, where would you expand to? Yeah. And, and, you know, so the, 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 the service that can be provided to exporters or to importers is under a crunch at the present time, which is going to have longer-term consequences. And as a part of the labor negotiation, I mean, the, the effect of reduced reliability by strikes, but by the hazards that the supply chain through Vancouver faces in any case, um, is a threat to the growth of the Port of Vancouver and has to be taken into account when, when considering um, how serious it is to all parties, including the future growth of longshore job opportunities, mm. to get this settled quickly. Yeah. Some important points. And when it comes to diversifying or, or finding other options, I mean, does that fall to industry or is there a role for government to play in helping to create or facilitate other options? Um, my, general, <laughs> my general preference is to uh, keep governments out yeah. because governments don't make great choices in terms of commercial realities and opportunities. Right. Um, so we have done a fairly good job of facilitating you know, the gateway strategy program, but the gateway strategy program needs to take into account all gateways. And certainly during COVID, uh, that brought attention to the importance of our north-south gateways. So that as we look to think about diversifying sources, from origin through the routes that they that they follow, um, north-south flows are an important part of that. And I'm sure at the present time, um, more of the consumer goods either are or very soon will be arriving in Alberta through your um, U.S. crossings <laughs> uh, rather than east-west. So what happens with these, these ships when you get a situation like that? Are they just kind of languishing at the port? Do these ships turn around? Do they look for, for other well, places? Well it, well, it varies a bit. It varies between the container ships, which are more like a bus service, you know, right. calling at various stops along the route, uh, from the, the bulk ships. And I'm honestly, I haven't tracked what has been happening with the container ships. The container ships when they're coming to Vancouver and the strike hasn't happened, they're going to have cargo to discharge here as well as other ports. So I suppose some of those may be waiting around for a little while, hoping that they can get in. But the longer it goes on, they're going to move and discharge their U.S. cargoes. Um, and they probably have a larger volume on the ship for the U.S. ports than for the Canadian ports. So... You hang around for a while and then you give up. But mm -hmm. I, I haven't been following that, that sure. yeah. tracking. And the other question is, as it goes on longer, you've got ships that are now loading um, in Japan, Korea, China. Okay, and, and we had some orders for containers to be, for 
for Vancouver to be put on those ships. What do you do? Well, and yeah, I, I mean, don't have an answer. Right, exactly. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a cost of putting them on and the strike not ending. And the alternative is, well, we don't put them on and yeah. <clears throat> darn it, uh, the strike has ended and now we've, we've missed the chance of uh, getting that good fill. Well, exactly. So there, are, there are costs all around. And, and uh, while the strike is on, and there will be costs in the short run after as companies, exporters and importers try to catch up, and there will be costs long-term as the sourcing and the logistics routing is changed so that we can protect ourselves against these unpredictable events. So I guess our society is just faced with this problem of how to protect ourselves. Right. Are certain sectors uh, of the economy more vulnerable than others? Um, well, on the certain sectors, well, the automobile industry would be one. Yeah. Both, both for the flow of cars, although the flow of cars longer term, you can use U.S., routings, um, and, the, and the flow of, of automobile parts. Um, like we're talking uh, about our, the grocery ex- industry. And our exporters. Yeah. Right. You know? now, now, fortunately, the ILW agreement that is subject to the strike doesn't affect the grain industry. Uh, so they have a separate agreement. And so the farmers are not as much as not as directly affected in their exports as uh, uh, the potash, for example, or sulphur, or other other minerals. Coal also has got an exception because there are two facilities on the west coast. Um, the one in um, uh, Prince Ru- Prince Rupert and West Shore Terminals here in Vancouver. They have separate agreements, so they are still okay. operating. But coal, coal moving through Neptune terminals here in Vancouver is closed down. So it depends upon the agreements that the terminals have. Right. We'll leave it there for now. We'll see how it all plays out in the days and weeks ahead. But certainly appreciate your insights uh, on all of this. Professor Heber, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Okay, Rob. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's Trevor Heber, uh, Professor Emeritus, University of British Columbia, uh, past director of the Center for Transportation Studies, uh, founding member and past president of the International Association of Maritime Economists. So talking about the importance of port traffic to Canadian to the Canadian economy, uh, but also talking about maybe the need to figure out how to better diversify or to have other options. So maybe that's something that comes out of this because, you know, this is, uh, I guess, a a man-made situation, if you will. Uh, You know, these workers deciding to go on strike, but there can be other factors. You know, as he says, it's comparable to those floods that had a lot of that traffic uh, cut off out of the lower mainland about a year and a half ago. So those kinds of situations can arise too. So do we want to be dependent, as dependent as we are, on the port of Vancouver. But what are those those other options? Uh, so in the meantime, though, this drags on. Those other options uh, aren't there at the moment. And so there's potential that, you know, as much as a quarter of a billion dollars uh, per week could be the cost from all of this. Uh, you know, another expert points out uh, in, in the Financial Post here that, you know, the first week or two, businesses are usually able to bridge just fine. 
but it gets increasingly worse after that. Businesses run out of inventory and cannot replenish it easily. And for those who, who need to export, you know, you can only hold on to all of that for so long. And then it affects, you know, the production side of things eventually, too. Uh, so, yeah, the longer this goes on, the worse the damage is going to be. And we're already getting into that territory, I think. So we'll see what comes of it. Uh, you know, as mentioned, this is certainly going to dominate a lot of the conversation tomorrow between Alberta's premier and the prime minister. You know, are we at the point where the feds need to step in here? Maybe we're already past that point. <laughs> A lot of that networking going on, a lot of important conversations taking place around Stampede. That is going to include, this week, a conversation between Alberta's Premier Danielle Smith and Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Plenty to discuss, I would imagine, between the two. There's going to be a lot of talk about energy. And included in that conversation is LNG, liquefied natural gas. Here's what the premier said today about uh, dealing with the prime minister and issues and concerns around energy policy. I did tell him when, or his uh, his ministers, Minister Le- LeBlanc and Minister Wilkinson, when we met, that I wanted to immediately start a working group to deal with the three issues. But my conditions for that is that off the table had to be a net zero by 2035 target on electricity, and off the table had to be an emissions cap, and, and on the table needed to be a discussion about Article 6, which is the way that we can get credit for reducing emissions globally and they weren't prepared to commit to that at the table so we weren't prepared to commit to meet and develop the working group so um, as soon as they're prepared to to say that those will be the the foundational starting point for how we can have a, a discussion about how we might move forward and meet emissions reduction targets then we'll establish that group and that's what i'm hoping comes out of friday i'm hoping that they've seen because they should have seen that we simply cannot achieve an emissions reduction target by 2030. Impossible. I've made it clear very many times. We also know that British Columbia has seen that they can't reach their emissions reduction goals and increase LNG without getting credit for reducing emissions glo- uh, globally. So I think that there's some movement there. But all you have to look at is the uh, electricity rates in this province and the fact that the natural gas producers have been reluctant to come forward with new projects because of the uncertainty that the federal government has created. That creates instability in the grid, it creates a lack of reliability, and it creates an affordability crisis. So we are seeing today the consequences of that uncertainty. And they also know it is impossible possible for us to achieve a net zero grid by 2035. So I've had to be fairly firm in in putting those messages forward and we'll we'll see if we've managed to have a breakthrough. Um, Again, I still remain hopeful. I will let you know uh, after our meeting whether that uh, that hope is misplaced or or whether or not we have something to, to agree to to go forward on. Okay, so that was the Premier speaking today, and we'll see what comes out of this meeting on Friday. She alluded to Article 6. This is Article 6 under the Paris Agreement. The idea that Canada or jurisdictions within Canada could receive credit for displacing emissions elsewhere. The idea here with LNG exports is we can displace the use of coal in Asian countries, uh, that that's something that Canada deserves some credit for. So there seems to be some agreement, certainly between the Western premiers around this idea, so that the potential that we can make some headway with Ottawa on this. And of course, there's still the need for further natural gas development here at home. So what does this all portend uh, for Canada as an LNG powerhouse? We're certainly at an interesting moment. Joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all of this, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Stuart Muir, who's uh, founder and CEO of Resource Works. Uh, Stuart, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
Well, first of all, you know, this consensus that seems to be there between the Western premiers and when you got a conservative premier in Alberta and NDP premier in B.C. kind of on the same page here, that seems pretty significant. So what do you make of this progress on, on Article 6 around LNG? Yeah, they've come together as a result of the meeting they held last week on this issue. Seven premiers, that's a preponderance of confederation in advance of next week's meeting in Manitoba of the Council of the Federation, which is all the premiers. So they're setting up the national conversation at that stage for this. And and so too is Premier Smith setting that up in her conversation anticipated on, on Friday with the Prime Minister. Let's talk about emissions, energy, how these things fit together. It's a valuable conversation to be happy to be happening right now. Now, Article 6, we could go deep into the weeds on that, but it really comes out of the Paris Agreement that everyone's heard about on climate. And as, as you said, it's a way to recognize that if a lower emissions product is sent over somewhere else, say to Korea or Japan, to supplant higher emitting material, maybe there's some value in that that can be recognized through credits. And I did a back of the napkin calculation. I actually think a pretty good one. You look at the big first Canadian LNG plant. That's the one in Kitimat, LNG Canada. It's going to go live in about 2025, and it's on schedule. It will, by my calculation, supplant the emissions from 17 large coal plants in Asia. That's the equivalent. Now, currently, there's some money to be made from that, from selling that gas to such a market, but there's no credits in the sense of Article 6. So um, since this treaty has been signed and Canada signed it, it, it certainly seems to follow logically for Premier of Alberta that we should be talking about how are we going to implement it. And I do know that there's a bit of a cottage industry of those saying, no, no, we shouldn't do that because it's just more fossil fuels. Well, I, I think it's it's a fair thing to see that there is a gradation of emissions and acknowledge that in our policy. And right now, that seems to be a sticking point here. It does. And I think that, you know, the question is who has Ottawa's ear right now? Those who say, you know, decarbonization needs to mean moving away from LNG. And those who say, look, LNG development can be a win-win, both in terms of the economy and the environment. Which way does Ottawa seem to be leaning? Uh, Ottawa is stepping carefully in this. I, I think they are wary of the political arrangement they have that keeps them in power, where the NDP has more reliance on um, a spectrum of vote that is is you know stronger on e- emissions reduction at any cost versus the the more centrist uh, view of well we have to balance these things out so I think there's that sort of you know internal political dynamic going on and you know I, I think you have to give the the Trudeau government some credit for having uh, built and permitted the major LNG project but on on the west coast mm-hmm. but at the same time we have the world coming to our door we've had the leaders of Japan and Germany in the last, uh, you know, 10 months or so come to this country to say, can you help us out here? We need some gas. And the answer is, let's talk about hydrogen, which at, in 2023 isn't the most helpful thing to offer, given the status of the technology, uh, well-intended perhaps. But I think for those, you know, just for the, you know, average person who's looking at how do we fund the rising cost of health care? How do we keep up with the price of groceries here? When you look at that problem right now, we've got this abundant supply of gas here in Canada. Right now, it's a lot of it is being exported south to the U.S., where it's being turned into LNG and sent to Asia. And the jobs from that are being created for Texans and Louisianans, God bless them all, but not for people in B.C. and Alberta and elsewhere. 
in Canada, which I think is, you know, absolutely true. This is definitely happening right now today. And if you, like, just to give you an idea of the scale, the value of this, one ship, if you see it leaving port, loaded up with LNG from Kitimat, going to Korea, that ship cargo is worth about $100 million. You look at a little country like Qatar, which is with the United States, the biggest, you know, tied for the biggest LNG producing country in the world. They basically built this incredible quality of life in that tiny country on the back of LNG and natural gas and other forms. It's been incredibly valuable. And at the same time, it reduces the reliance on coal when, you know, implemented in that way. Um, so the, the logic for this, the, the common sense approach to having more LNG from Canada, not Canadian gas as LNG from Texas, is just something anyone can connect with. There was also recently some good news on this front, the approval of, and it's it's smaller than the LNG Canada project, but there's some significant around the Cedar LNG project, which is a $3 billion project. Uh, but this is a project that's being led by First Nations, and I think that represents a really unique opportunity there to build those partnerships, to, to further the cause of reconciliation, create economic opportunities in, in these communities. And, and that's another important aspect to all of this, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I see that project and others like it as probably the most significant social innovation in modern Canada. I mean, think of another one uh, in terms of boosting a First Nation. I mean, we've seen this in the oil sands, too, and along corridors uh, of, of uh, transmission lines and pipelines where you've got these local impacts. Uh, I mean, you want to have them spread evenly, I think, in theory. But the fact that there are First Nations who are saying yes we want to be the owners of these. We're not here to take handouts. I hear this so often when I travel in the territories of First Nations who are interested or not interested in development. You know, they, they want own source revenues, as the phrase goes, so that they can fund healthcare and buses and senior services and preserving language, things like that. That's the heart of the culture. If the language dies, culture dies. I, I go to communities where they've got a beautiful schoolhouse paid for by having business relationships where the First Nation has complete control over what it wants to do there. It's not some bureaucrat in Ottawa saying you have to do this. And they have their own source revenue, and they can only get that from being active in business. And that's what LNG represents. It's not just, oh, LNG is nice. It's about what First Nations can, can do to attain whatever their aspirations are, which is entirely a decision of the First Nation. But this is a, a path to freedom. That's how I hear it described so often. And I think Canada can only do more to support this. It's the right direction to be going in. It's what everyone wants. No, in BC, there was some concern. The BC government had uh, a policy or an expectation uh, that these projects have a, a net zero by 2030 plan. How much of an obstacle is that? Or is the BC government starting to, to soften its uh, position on that? Well, you know, I think in the high-level messaging of, of uh, Premier Smith, there is a sense of trepidation at the at the you know Alberta economy level, where her statements are based on no doubt advice that she's receiving from from her people, in, in terms of the LNG folks, when that came out at the time that the Cedar LNG project was approved recently, I th- I thought oh boy this is there's going to be some pushback on this industry is not going to like it. you know what they said they said no problem um, we've got this we will figure this out because that's what the energy industry always does. You know, that's what the glass towers in Calgary, all the people working down there, they're engineers, 
geologists, you throw a problem at them, you know what they do? They solve the problem. And it's those minds that are the ones who are, you know, largely providing the technology to do these things on the West Coast. And I, 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 was, I was surprised how quickly they said, you know, they, it's not just one thing they do. It's a thousand things. You know, it's, it's procedures and it's equipment and it's uh, trading mechanisms. And, and having Article 6 is, is one of those things. So if, if we deny things that are on the table and available because they've been negotiated for Canada in, in a treaty, we should be using those things. I think that's, that's one thing that the, the Premier is rightly concerned about. And, um, you know, you, so you've got these projects, whether it's the Kasila Sims project for the Nishka First Nation, northern northern, uh, more northernly uh, location than Kitimat, north of Prince Rupert, um, wh- whether it's the wood fiber LNG project closer to Vancouver, they're all saying, yeah, um, throw this problem at us, we'll solve it. So Canada is in a position because it has got the commitment, the law, the people, and actually resources that are quite uh, clean. You know, Canadian gas in, in the Montney especially, which I know more about, comes out of the ground much cleaner than in a lot of places in terms of impurities. And and that's an advantage we've got that's a natural one. So, yeah, this is... The, if, if we have leadership that now says, okay, we have these conditions, we can reduce our emissions, let's go. Let's give them the green light to do it. But if at the same time as having success conditions and having uh, something worthwhile, like let's build LNG for... BC and Alberta benefit, not for Texas's benefit. Um, let's let's give the green light to do that as well, and let's encourage it. So I think that's something that maybe the Stampede could uh, bring forward some conversations between these leaders on that, and also next week when all the premiers meet. Well, let's hope so. In the meantime, much more at resourceworks.com. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. That's uh, Stuart Muir, who's uh, founder and CEO of ResourceWorks, ResourceWorks.com. So an interesting look at maybe where our LNG policy needs to focus and, and how we can benefit from that. Initial want to talk about off the top here this afternoon, though, is uh, Arctic sovereignty and security and where Canada's falling behind. Next week, uh, NATO heads of state are going to be gathering uh, well, and, and it was meant to be in part, I guess, Finland and Sweden's ascension into NATO. There's still some uh, hiccups, I guess, around uh, Sweden's uh, joining NATO. But with those two countries set to join the NATO alliance, uh, along with Iceland, Norway and Denmark, there's an increasing focus within the NATO alliance on northern security. And this should be an issue in which Canada is leading to. Unfortunately, as these Nordic countries have stepped up, and have really focused in on northern security, Canada, it seems, has taken a step back. And I think it's unfortunate, especially given what's going on with NATO, but this should matter to Canadians. This is our coast. This is our territory. Uh, This is a sovereignty and security issue. It's an interesting uh, piece in the Calgary Herald about why all of this matters, why Canada needs to be taking the lead of the Nordic states in being at the table, being a serious player when it comes to Arctic security and sovereignty. Uh, someone who has followed this issue very closely for uh, quite a long time is Dr. Rob Hubert, Senior Fellow of the McDonnell laurier Institute, Professor of Political Science at the University of Calgary, and as mentioned, author of this op-ed. You can find it at calgaryherald.com. Professor Hubert, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, there we go. We got you there. Yep. Hello. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Thanks for making some time for us here. Appreciate this. 
I'm curious in terms of how NATO's changing here with Finland joining and, and presumably at some point soon here Sweden. Uh, given, you know, the focus on Arctic security we see from, from these and other states, does, is that, how much does that change, you know, the focus of, of NATO? What does it mean to Canada? Well, what is happening is that ever since the um, Russians invaded Ukraine back in 2014 in, in the Dubas and the, the Crimea, we've seen that the northern Nordic countries have realized what the threat from Russia was. And we've seen them improving relations between each other. And this is even predating before we hear officially that Finland and Sweden are going to be joining NATO or trying to join NATO. They begin to invest very heavily in in their modernizing their capabilities, and particularly in the aerospace dimension. And we start seeing them cooperating with the Americans. And so what becomes evident by the time we get into about 216, 217, is that the Nordic countries realize that collective security against the Russian is an absolute necessity for their security, and they take the steps that are necessary to do so. You ask what Canada has done in all of this is, well, last a couple weeks ago, the prime minister did meet with his Nordic uh, contemporaries and did say that Canada will host some further talks on this issue. But, you know, as you know, it's 2023. Um, so we, we haven't really done all that much, if anything, with them on this regards. You refer to this as, as a northern NATO within NATO and, and supported by and backed by the United States. So we've got Norway, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, and, and Sweden. Um, so what kind of integration are, are we seeing between these countries now? Well, what happens in 2009 is that the three Nordic NATO countries realize that there is something to be gained by closer collaborations with the Finns and the Swedes. So this is even predating the Ukrainian war, but it's occurring after the Georgian war. So in other words, they're paying attention to what the Russians are doing with military force on their border. And so they, 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 they create this agreement, Nordefco was called, uh, in which coordination is made easier. Now, after the Ukrainian war uh, starts in 2014, that is when, of course, you then see the uh, the Nordic countries saying that they have to have a much more streamlined aerospace defense. In other words, they start realizing the type of weapon systems, the speeds that are necess- uh, that they have to respond to. And so they do so with military exercises. They do so in terms of coordinating between their commands. They do so by buying basically the same kit from the Americans and bringing the Americans all into it. And so you can't ever officially have a NATO within NATO. You can't have a southern tier of NATO. You can't have officially an eastern tier of NATO. But so if you ask any of them, you know, are you actually creating sort of a a northern section of NATO? They'll say, no, 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 no. But once again, you can see by their actions, you can see by their very expensive defense decisions and the way that they've been exercising, it's a de facto northern tier of NATO that is being very largely strengthened since 2016. Now, there's the geographic proximity of, of the Nor- Nordic countries, but I mean, given that the U.S. has played a role here, I mean, is, is there, should there be a role for Canada to play? Is this something we should be more involved in? Well, Canada says that it's, it's an Arctic nation, so even by definition, you would think. Now, Canada, and particularly our political elites, try to create, have been trying to create a narrative 
there are two security arctics. There is a North American Arctic security and a European Arctic security. Mm-hmm. And even the most recent Senate report plays to this mythology, or what I would characterize as a mythology, because it creates the impression that our, secu- our Arctic is more secure than the European Arctic. And people will say, well, yeah, the Europeans have the Russians, they have the nuclear forces concentrated in the Kola Peninsula, and so therefore there's a higher danger. But The problem is that totally sidesteps the question that we are in a collective alliance. We are a member of NATO. And so the idea that somehow the European Arctic is more at risk than ours simply isn't true. I mean, if the Russians were ever to do anything or if a conflict was to spill over into the northern regions, European regions, which is what the Nordics are terrified about, then you would have Canada being automatically involved in that context. And so at a minimum, we should be taking taking opportunity of the fact that this Nordifcom agreement allows for third party. That's how the Americans get in. I think it's Article 8 in the overall agreement. And why aren't we talking before Trudeau goes and meets with him in Iceland two weeks ago? I mean, we should have ongoing discussions. We should be working with them in terms of how we see NORAD modernization and how we ultimately link into the overall big picture of aerospace defense in the region. And, of course, those discussions simply are not happening from the Canadian perspective. Well, does, is, it, is it because then maybe we don't want to highlight uh, our lack of commitment to these issues, that, that trying to be more involved in these conversations might raise some awkward questions about why we're not doing more to establish presence to assert our sovereignty in, in our north? You know, you answer your question with your question. Uh, I mean, from a political perspective, if you can pretend somehow that you are not at risk, that somehow the Russians will treat you different, or the Chinese presumably in a future conflict over Taiwan, that somehow just by nature being Canadian and not being European or American, these, these, these adversarial states will just simply take a buy on us, buys in political support. These are difficult issues to be addressing. And I think that there is a very clear lack of political appetite to deal with it. I mean, it's only when the second phase of the Ukrainian war starts becoming so evident that we finally see the government saying, oh, yeah, you know that defense review that when we talked about NORAD modernization but spent didn't do anything about it since 2017, we're going to do it now. And so... You see that when we are making the decisions, and we've made some some recent decisions that are, of course, correct. We are going to be getting the F-35s. We are going to be modernizing some elements of NORAD. And so all of those are true, but they've only occurred because the situation has become so dangerous. There isn't that appetite, and even worse, there is not a political penalty for any government that basically just wants to take what you know, I, I've characterized in the past an increasingly isolationist view on how it responds to its allies. It can't get away with it, at least in terms of the, the public statements uh, after the second phase of the Ukrainian war starts. And so you see Trudeau finally saying, yes, we have to be serious. We're all in this together. But we don't see the actions necessarily following through in terms of what is said, even from those statements. Right. And I mean, part of it is a resource issue, having the resources. Um, but I, I think there's an underlying policy issue. I'm not sure which causes which, if the, the resource challenges cause the policy void or if it's the other way around. But, you know, it's two sides of the same problem, isn't it? 
Well, part of the problem is that the government does have discretion. I mean, once again, we get into this issue about 2%. People say, well, it's 2% a meaningful number in terms of what our GDP should be contributing in terms of defense expenditures. Um, our, you know, the Canadian government did agree to that, that we would be doing 2%. And we know from released documents that Trudeau has no intentions on doing that. They were publicly saying that, no, this isn't going to happen. But the the auditors general did a study on this and said, okay, what would we have to do in terms of expenditures of where we are and how do we get up to the 2%? And the auditor general's report showed that relative to, say, expenditures on, say, the support of the CRA program, which was brought in under COVID, the government could actually come up with a rational way of getting to the 2% if it had the political will to do so. In other words, the government, as we've known, has run up deficit expenditures on what it sees as priorities. And so it has demonstrated that it can take very large amounts and spend them. And the Auditor General's report suggests that it is indeed possible over a six-year period to sort of spend similar increases and actually reach it. But it always comes back to the point, where are you actually going to spend the money? Are you going to spend it where you think you will get political traction? And we know in terms of some of the the funds that were made available after the COVID crisis, that that obviously has helped the government in terms of re-election. Or are you going to spend it on something that you may think is right, national security, but it's not going to get you any votes because everybody still thinks the threat is over there or it's not going to happen anytime soon. And so you can understand the political imperative, which means that, well, basically Canadians will see defense increases as discretionary. When, of course, they're not. But nevertheless, if you have that luxury as a government, you then don't have to respond. And ultimately, you're protected by the belief that the Americans will do it all for you anyway. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, that's that's not a new story in these conversations for sure. I guess we'll see what happens at the NATO Summit next week and, and beyond. We'll leave it there for now. Rob, appreciate the insight uh, as always. Thanks for joining us here. Always my pleasure, Rob. Likewise, all the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Rob Hubert, uh, professor of political science, University of Calgary, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, and some has focused a lot of uh, work and research uh, on issues around Arctic security and sovereignty. And yeah, look, I mean, it's one area where this government has clearly dropped the ball. You know, I mean, you could argue that successive governments have, but uh, given everything that's happened over the last eight or nine years, this should be much more of a priority. And I do wonder just how embarrassing this is all going to be uh, next week at this NATO summit and beyond as this becomes more of a focus. And we see the lead that uh, these Nordic countries are taking. And the question, well, here's another Arctic country. Where, where the hell is Canada? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.